Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We are starting a brand new series tonight entitled, Show Us Your Glory. And for, I don't know, for several months now, this is a topic that has literally consumed me. I just cannot get away from this theme of God's glory. And I'm convinced that as we move along throughout this study, God is going to reveal more and more to us about His glory. But we want to do an introduction tonight to sort of kick off this new series, and then I'll give you an outline a little later this evening of where we're going in these coming weeks on this study. But let, let me just begin by introducing the subject with Moses in the Old Testament. Moses was an amazing man of God, and I think most of us are familiar with the highlights of his life. But in Exodus 3, when God first appeared to him in the desert at the burning bush, there in the flames, God began to speak to Moses and reveal himself to him. And as time progresses and God begins to make more and more clear his purpose and his calling for Moses, we, we just finished a long series about Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt and going into the Promised Land. And part of that journey was when they came to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And the cloud of God's glory covered that mountain. It was like fire and smoke on the mountain. And Moses actually went up into that glory cloud. He went up into that fire on the top of Mount Sinai, and at least once prior to the place where we're going to pick up the story in Moses' life, he had already gone up there and spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God, in the glory of God, something that he would do again a second time in Exodus 34. But we want to pick up the story in Exodus 33. And what I especially want you to see is that even with all of those previous experiences, seeing God in the burning bush, seeing the, the glory cloud on top of Mount Sinai, and actually going up into it, spending 40 days and 40 nights in that glory, Moses is still not satisfied. There's something burning in his heart that will not be satisfied with anything less. And I believe that we're going to be able to see more and more clearly as we move throughout this study that this is the very thing that man's heart longs for. It's to see the glory of God. Thus, we're entitling this whole Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. And as always, I want to mention the outline notes and recordings of each study, 
starting with tonight's, will be uploaded to our website and available for download at new-life-ministries.org. And we'll be uploading uh, the next parts as they are completed, and you can find those there on the website. But I want to go directly to Exodus 33, starting with verse 12, a very famous and well-known passage uh, from Moses' life. And this passage is loaded. I mean it is loaded. There, there's enough stuff in this one passage that we could probably talk for months and months. And I just want to zero in on a couple of things tonight, and we may actually come back to this again at a later date. But let's read it. Exodus 33. I'm going to be reading from verse 12 down to verse 23. Exodus 33, 12 to 23. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Verse 14, the Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back but my face must not be seen. You know, it, it's interesting to see these kinds of conversations, back and forth, dialogues between man and God. And God is inviting every one of us into that kind of a relationship. And not to get 
too far off topic tonight, but I think sometimes when we pray, we think that it's just a one-way conversation. We rattle off all of our requests, we tell God all of our problems, and then we close in prayer and we're up and running before God even has a chance to engage us in a conversation. He says in Isaiah, come, let's sit down and reason together. What an amazing thing that God would want to have a conversation with us. But that's exactly what's happening here. And it's interesting to see how it develops. Moses starts off saying, Lord, you told me to lead these people, but you haven't told me who's going to come with me. And you also said that I have found favor with you. Well, if you're pleased with me, and if I've found favor with you, here's my first request. It's a very good request. Teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. If you and I want to continue in the favor of God, in the grace of God, we're going to have to learn some things. We're going to have to learn His ways. His ways are not like our ways. They're higher than the heavens are above the earth. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. And so there needs to be a transformation in our mind and in our thinking so that we can begin to know who He is and walk in that grace, in that favor. Then he says, remember, Lord, this nation is your people. And that's where the Lord replies, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Man, oh man, what a promise. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Most of us would have closed in prayer right then and there and said, Hallelujah, God gave me the assurance I wanted. His presence will always be with me. But Moses is still not satisfied. Verse 15, Moses goes on and says, Okay, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Now, we're getting a little bit closer now to beginning to understand something about the glory of God. It's very closely related to the presence of God. We haven't defined it yet, but we're getting close. And Moses knows something very profound and very powerful that you and I need to understand. The church of Jesus Christ needs to understand this desperately in these last days. Moses understood there is no substitute, nothing else that can take the place of the living God showing up, manifesting himself, his manifest presence with us. No substitute. There's no formula. There's no set of 
rules or concepts or regulations that can take the place of that. Moses hit the nail on the head. God, if you are not with us, we're no different from anybody else in the world. And, brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ is no different from any other social club, could be um, any kind of a social gathering where they have tea and cookies and a little bit of, you know, fun time and fellowship with one another. We're no different from any other club or any other social group unless, unless we have the presence of God with us. That should drive us to our knees in prayer, in fasting, crying out for God to manifest His presence with us. I, I can't get away from this. This is profound. Verse 16 again. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? It's not how many years you've been a Christian. It's not how big your Bible is, how many Bible verses you can quote. There's only one thing that distinguishes us from all the other peoples on the earth. He goes on to say, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Only one thing makes us different. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's the anointing of the God's Spirit upon us. It's the manifestation of His presence and His glory in our lives. We can't fake that. We can't manufacture it. And there's no substitute for it. The only way is to do what Moses is doing here. Seek God. Cry out to God until we find Him. And even... When God tells Moses, okay, you got it. My presence will go with you. I like the way it reads in the NIV, verse 18. Then Moses said, now. I like that word now. Now. I'm still not happy. There's still something lacking. Now. Show me your glory. I don't know where Moses got that from. I really don't know. It came from the inner depths of his soul, his heart, and his spirit. Something inside him could not be satisfied with anything less. Show me your glory. And of course the Lord tells him, Moses, you don't exactly know what you're asking. You can't see my full glory right now. If you do, it will destroy you. It will burn you up. No one may see me and live. Nevertheless, God does agree in verse 22, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. In other words, you're going to get a glimpse. It's going to pass by you. 
you're not going to be able to look fully into it because you can't. You just can't stand it. And thankfully, God doesn't always answer every prayer. And some of the things we ask for would actually hurt us if God did it. This is one example of that. You can't see my face and live. But based on what we've just seen in the case of Moses, despite all of his experiences, all of the miracles he saw, the power of God, the glory of God that was manifested in Egypt, long after that, he is still longing for something more. Show me your glory. I've studied this a lot in the last several months, and I'm coming to understand a little bit better that the thing that my heart longs for more than anything else is the glory of God. You may not understand it yet, but I think we'll be able to show you that the thing that your heart longs for more than fame, money, pleasure, power, a big ministry, or anything else, what your heart longs for is the very glory of God. There is a longing, if you will, there's, there's some kind of a vacuum inside of every man, woman, and child. There's an emptiness that can only be filled with the eternal glory of God. One of my favorite characters in the Bible and one of the first books I read from the Bible when the Lord was drawing me to salvation is the book of Ecclesiastes written by King Solomon, the wisest man in the Old Testament. This man was supremely blessed by God with riches, wisdom, every conceivable earthly pleasure this man had it. The things that we long for, the things that we run after in life, Solomon had. He didn't have to run after anything. I think by today's standards, Solomon would probably be not a millionaire, not even a billionaire, probably a trillionaire. He had so much gold, silver had no value. He could have anything he wanted. All he had to do was snap his finger. If he wanted a new palace, if he wanted parks, gardens, ponds, lakes, servants, women, my God, he had a thousand wives. This was a man that had everything and then some. And yet, after all of his achievements, all of his knowledge and wisdom and power and wealth, no doubt the mightiest, wealthiest king on the face of the earth. You don't have to read very far into his book, the book of Ecclesiastes, to find out that all of that stuff still had not satisfied him. He could not find the satisfaction that he longed for in anything under the sun. 
And you find that phrase often in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. In other words, anything earthly or material, he had it. But instead, as he surveyed his riches, his wisdom, his power, all of the pleasures that he had at his fingertips, he repeatedly states, it is utterly meaningless, it's vanity, and my favorite expression, it's like chasing after the wind. Chasing after the wind. And here we have a man in the Bible that had everything that most people today are running after. He already had it, and he came back to tell us, don't waste your time. It's like running after wind. And yet most of us never pay attention to Solomon. We still think money's the answer. If I can just make more money, it'll make me happy. Others think, if I can get more wisdom, it'll make me happy. So they study, 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 read, read, read. They get degree after degree after degree, and then they wonder, why am I still not happy? And then they achieve. They achieve in the business world. Maybe they achieve in the sports world. They win the Super Bowl or the World Series or the championship game, and they have a whole shelf case full of trophies that they've won, and then they wonder, why am I still not happy? Solomon was given the answer. God actually gave him the answer to his own dilemma. And after repeatedly crying out, vanity, vanity, everything under the sun is vanity, is chasing after the wind, in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon receives a revelation that no one else in the Bible has worded in quite the same way that he did. And we want to turn to that now. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 11 to 14. He begins in verse 11. He, he's referring to God. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Some older translations, like the King James, I believe, it says, He has set the world in the hearts of men. That's really a poor translation. Because the Hebrew word here is the word olam, which everywhere else in the Bible is translated everlasting or eternity. One of the names for God is olam. He's the, the eternal God from eternity to eternity, from olam to olam. He is God. This is an absolutely mind-blowing revelation that Solomon received. And we need to study this carefully. Listen to what he's saying. God made everything beautiful in its time, but he's done something very unique in the hearts of men. He set something inside the heart of every man, every woman, and every child. 
He placed eternity there. He placed eternity there. My understanding of that is the Bible says God made man in his own image and likeness. That is not said about any other creature. Monkeys, apes, they're not the same as men and women. Men and women alone were made in God's image and likeness. And when he did so, apparently he stamped something in the innermost being of every human being. It's called eternity. And yet, it goes on to say, they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We know in our hearts that there's something out there that transcends us. It's beyond this earthly realm. It's beyond our short 70 or 80 year lifespan. We know it. It's stamped inside of us. But we can't figure it out. We can't fathom it. We can't understand how something can be eternal because we have a beginning and an end on this earth under the sun. But Solomon says when God made man, he set eternity in his heart. He goes on to say in verse 12, <clears throat> I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. Now, I don't know exactly how Solomon said that, but it either sounds like total hypocrisy, or he's being a little bit sarcastic. He's been writing for two solid chapters. There is no satisfaction in toil. There is no satisfaction in eating and drinking. Doesn't matter how much you eat today, you're hungry again tomorrow. Doesn't matter how much you drink today, you're thirsty tomorrow. You can work and work and work and work, and you're never going to find satisfaction in your toil. So for him to say, eat and drink, and be happy doesn't quite line up with everything else he's saying here. I personally think he's being a bit sarcastic. Verse 14, <clears throat> I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does this so that men will revere him. You see, even though we can't verbalize it, we may not even fully understand it. From a child, every one of us knows deep down inside there's something out there called God, called eternity. Romans chapter 1, and we're not going to go there now, but Romans chapter 1 is very clear that there's no such thing as an atheist. They all knew God, but there's always that possibility of suppressing that knowledge, trying to push it out of our 
mind and our consciousness. And the more we do that, the more we go into darkness and distance ourselves from the glory of God. But make no mistake, and I think you'll find if you meditate on this, it will give you great boldness when you are trying to witness or share Christ with an unbeliever. Regardless of what they try to say, you can speak with authority that in their heart of hearts, they know there's a God. They know there's something called eternity, and they know that one day they're going to enter into eternity. And we can appeal to that very thing that God has already set there. It's called eternity. He placed it there when he made man in his own image and likeness. Coming back to our theme, what I believe this really means is deep down inside the heart of every man, woman, and child is a longing to know the God of glory and the glory of God. To know this God and everything about Him. Nothing less will satisfy Ask the millionaires, <clears throat> ask the millionaires and the billionaires of the world, once they've achieved all of that, does it make them happy? There are numerous testimonies of famous artists, multi-billionaires, and so forth, that when they reach the pinnacle, they commit suicide, because they're so dissatisfied and they're so disappointed. And basically, they end up like Solomon, surveying their kingdoms, their power, their, their big ministries even, and saying, is that all there is? Why am I not happy? Why am I not satisfied? I think we will be able to show that nothing less than the glory of God can ever satisfy anyone. All right, now, Let's get into it. Let's try to define or at least have an understanding what do we mean when we talk about God's glory. It's a, it's a very broad term, and it really isn't very easy to define because only God possesses it. Oh, there's a certain kind of a human or earthly glory but it is not what we're talking about here. God's glory is unique. And the glory of God is mentioned about 430 times in the Bible. You find words like glory, glorify, glorious, over 430 times in the scriptures. About 200 times in the Old Testament, and amazingly, much more in the New Testament, about 230 times. What we want to start off doing is looking at the original words in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and see if it gives any insight into what the word actually means. 
In the Old Testament, the word that is translated glory, and even words that stem from it, glorify, glorious, they all come from a Hebrew word, kabod, K-A-B-O-D, kabod. It's a fascinating word. The word literally means heavy, weight, W-E-I-G-T-G-H-T, weight, something that weighs a lot, weight or weighty. And you're like, okay, that doesn't help me a bit. I thought we were going to understand what glory is. And you're telling me it's something heavy, something weighty, something that weighs a lot? Well, the understanding that the word conveys is it's the weight or the heaviness of God referring to his fullness the, the, the overflowing fullness of who God is. His splendor, His copiousness, His gloriousness, His honor, or His glory. It means to be heavy in the sense of being numerous, rich, or honorable. Putting all that together, what I understand in light of all the scriptures where glory is mentioned in the scripture, it refers to the overwhelming richness of God himself. You can't have glory without God himself. It's something that emanates from the fullness of God. And it includes every aspect of God's name and God's character. His love, His power, His wisdom, His faithfulness, His mercy, His grace, His love, His goodness. It's the fullness of all that is God. Now, in the New Testament, the word that is translated glory or glorious in all of our Bibles, comes from the word doxa, D-O-X-A. And we're going to look at this later on, but we get the word doxology. A lot of times Christian worship services might end with a doxology. Well, it comes from this word, to glorify or to give glory. The word doxa in Greek means dignity, honor, or reputation, and it's something that's very apparent. And what we're going to see in the next few studies is glory is something manifested, it's something tangibly felt, it's something that people see, and they know, when they know, when they know, this is God's glory. It, it's something very visible, very apparent. And it emanates from the fullness, the weightiness of who God is. Now, very often, the glory of God 
is something that is associated with shining, light, radiance, or brightness. We have terms like the radiance of His glory, the brightness of His glory. That's just one aspect. But very often, it's something that shines. Things in the Bible shone with the glory of God. It was something radiating that people could see. Let's look at a couple of scriptures that might help us just to begin to even understand what this word means, glory. In 1 Chronicles 29.11, it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So every word we just read there, we could start to list as different aspects of God's glory. His greatness, His power, His majesty, His splendor. These are all related words, and when you add them up, you begin to see the meaning behind this word weight or heavy. And actually, there are some cases in the Bible that we'll be looking at when the glory of God was manifested, people literally fell to the ground under its weight. They couldn't stand, they couldn't enter into it, and they couldn't even do anything. They couldn't talk, they couldn't perform their service, it overwhelmed them. So the glory of God is the full weight of God's goodness, greatness, power, faithfulness, mercy, and wisdom, and it is so heavy, it overwhelms us when it is manifested. Now, back to Moses. Moses' prayer was, show me this thing. Show me your glory. And we just read, God said, well, I'm going to let my glory pass by you, but you really can't look into the full face of it, because it'll burn you up. But let's look a little further. These scriptures are not found in your outline tonight, but we can follow along. In Exodus 34, this is where God answers Moses. Exodus 34, starting in, well, in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, the first ones that were broken. Verse 2, be ready in the morning, then come up on Mount Sinai. We're still at Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. Man, this is awesome. Something really awesome is about to happen here. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets, second set of tablets, 
And he goes up to the Lord. Verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud. Let me stop for a minute. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. We'll see some verses shortly that indicate God's glory is everywhere. The whole earth is full of his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. God's presence is everywhere. God's glory is everywhere. But there are times and places where God comes down and manifests his presence, his power, and his glory in a very special, in a very personal way. That's what we're talking about now. Moses knew that God's glory filled the universe, but he was praying, I want to see it. Moses knew God's presence fills the universe, but he said, Lord, if your presence isn't manifested in my life and in the midst of these people, we're not going anywhere. So these words are very powerful. The Lord came down. This is called the manifest presence or glory of God. Verse 5 again. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That's the weight of God's glory. What happened to Moses when this weight fell on him? Verse 8. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. He bowed to the ground and worshipped. The glory of God includes everything that we just read. The compassionate God, the gracious God, a God who's slow to anger, abounding, copious full of love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Do you notice a theme in a lot of these qualities that are being listed here? Mercy, compassion, graciousness, forgiveness, faithfulness, slow to anger, abounding in love, maintaining love. That's the glory of God. It's the fullness of who God is. God is love. He's full of grace. He abounds in mercy. He abounds in goodness. This is what passed by Moses. The, the radiance of God's very being. His character. And so... One way of understanding the glory of God, it is that radiant 
splendor that shines forth just expressing who God is. It's visible. It's tangible. It's something that can be seen and felt. It, it radiates. It emanates from God because that's who He is. God doesn't just love us. God is love. There's a big difference. He is love. So when we get near God, we get close to the essence of love. And the radiance of that is what we call glory. It's, it's shining. It's bright. It's, it's splendid. It's wonderful. We can come up with all kinds of adjectives. But I think you notice, even I'm struggling to define this thing. Because it only refers to God. And we only know in part. Psalm 145 and 5 says, They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. Further on in this study, we're going to use an analogy. It's incomplete as any analogy concerning God would be, but it's an analogy that's used in Scripture and used by God himself. God says he is fire. Repeatedly, God is a consuming fire. And I don't know if you've ever watched fire closely or really thought about what it is, but it's a mystery. You can't put it into a bottle. You, you can't weigh it. It's not something you can control unless you take away the fuel. If you remove the fuel, the fire goes out. But the, the mystery of God is like the mystery of that fire. We don't really know what it is. But here's something we do know. We can see it. We can feel it and we can see its effects. Light is always associated with fire. Fire shines. It produces light. Fire gives off a glow, a radiance. Fire is also something that we feel. We can be far away from the fire and yet still feel what scientists call radiant heat. There's a radiant heat that is emanating from that fire. We feel it. And of course, fire gives off smoke, and fire consumes things. We see the effects that that fire has on other materials in its vicinity. God is fire. And the light, the heat, the smoke, all the other effects that emanate from that fire, that's what glory is. Glory is to God what the heat, the light, and the smoke is to a fire. No fire, no glory. 
Glory is only manifested when God is present. We can't manufacture it. We can't fake it. Nothing else can take its place. And the church of these last days, <coughs> excuse me, better learn this. And I'm, I'm sad to say that very often we, and I'm including myself, we think that by clever entertainment, fancy programs, and now many churches are even using fancy light shows, smoke, and sound effects and all that. We think that doing all of that, we're going to build the church. My friend, I am convinced there's only one thing that's going to build the church. It's the glory of God. And if we don't have it, we better get on our faces, cry out to God, fast and pray until it is manifested. Because all those other things are going to come way short of what God wants to do. Now, we're already running out of time, but I want to read a scripture passage, and we're going to launch from this next time and go into much more depth. But this is actually the scripture passage that God used to begin to to begin to draw me in to this study on the glory of God. It is probably the first Bible verse I ever memorized. It's found in Romans chapter 3, and you're going to recognize it as soon as we read it. Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. If you know anything about the book of Romans, it is the clearest exposition in the entire New Testament, on what we would call the doctrine of redemption or justification by faith. And Paul very expertly develops this whole theme, first showing how man is utterly sinful, he's utterly lost, he cannot do anything to save himself, and then he explains how Jesus Christ is the answer. Jesus is our righteousness, he is our redeemer, and he came to bring us redemption. But listen very carefully to this scripture passage that has come to be known as sort of the centerpiece of Paul's whole teaching on the gospel of Christ. Romans 3 Verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I have been fascinated with this verse. And when I first got saved, we had stacks and stacks of these gospel tracts that were called the Roman Road. And it basically took several scripture passages from Romans, starting with this one, all have sinned, and then it takes you to Romans 10, where it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. But listen carefully 
to what we just read. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, it would have made more sense to my natural mind in the context if Paul had said, all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard or God's righteousness or perhaps God's holiness. But that's not what he says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a powerful, powerful scripture. And as we develop this, I pray that it affects you the way it has affected me. And let me just introduce two things, and we're going to have to close for now and come right back here next time. The word sin, or in this case, sinned, they all come from the same Greek word. And it's very interesting what the word means. It's the Greek word hamartano. And it means literally to miss the mark. To miss the mark. And so not to share in the prize. And we get words like to err, to sin, or to trespass. But the literal meaning, wherever you find the word sin in the New Testament, it's this word. It's to miss the mark. And the best analogy I can come up with is like a dartboard or one of these targets that uh, an archer would use when he's practicing with his arrows or uh, a target that a marksman would be firing his gun at. And if you hit the bullseye, the very center of the target, you hit the mark. You may hit other places on the target, but you've missed the mark. And using Paul's terminology, you've sinned. You missed the bullseye. You missed the mark. You know, I knew I was going to be sharing about this down in Orlando, Florida this past weekend. And on the way down in the plane, I kept envisioning demonstrating this with a dartboard. Actually putting up a dartboard in the front of the church and throwing some darts at the board and showing the difference between hitting the mark and missing the mark. On the way down, on the plane the Holy Spirit spoke to me very clearly, there will be a dartboard in the church where you are preaching. Now, how many of you know sometimes when God speaks, it sounds a little bit strange? Well, this was one of those for me. I've been in hundreds and hundreds of churches, and I've never seen a church with a dartboard. I'm sorry. Why would a church have a dartboard? So, I'm struggling with this in my heart, and... To be very honest with you, when I got down to Orlando, in my unbelief, I immediately go to one of the brothers from the church and I say, Brother, can you take me to a toy store? He's like, Sure, why? 
I said, I want to buy a dartboard. He said, oh, well, sure, but I think there's already one in the church. Okay? Now I'm getting very interested. There's already a dartboard in the church. And there's much more to this story, and I'm going to wait and share it in our church service this weekend. But let me just give you part of it now. <clears throat> the pastor of the church, he also has a remodeling business. And he often works for investors and banks who have a foreclosed house or property and they now call him to come in and remodel that property. Well, two days before we arrived there in Florida, he was called by one of these investors and was told, go to such and such a property, it has been foreclosed, take one of these 30-yard metal dumpsters there and empty the place of all the junk and all the garbage. The house is full of junk, full of garbage, and when you get there, just clean it out, and then we're going to start remodeling the place. So Tuesday of last week, he rented one of these 30-yard dumpsters, had it delivered there to the house, and they began what is normally a very unpleasant task of emptying out all this junk and trash and garbage. He didn't know what to expect, but he was amazed when he got there. The house was full of stuff, but it wasn't garbage. All brand new clothes, brand new furniture, brand new toys, all kinds of stuff still with the tags on them, brand new uh, appliances and things that are still in the boxes. And amongst all of this so-called trash is a brand new dartboard in its box, the original packaging, it's never even been opened. And he doesn't know why, but he has taken this dartboard to the church. Two days later, I arrive in Florida, and I'm asking for a dartboard. Now, my friends, I don't know if that means anything to you, but that makes me want to shout and holler, glory to God, because that is a manifestation of the glory of God. And we put up the dartboard Saturday night, we threw a few darts at the board, and we demonstrated graphically what Paul meant by this scripture. All have sinned, They've missed the mark. They missed the bullseye. And here's where I'm going to leave it for tonight. What is the bullseye? The bullseye is the glory of God. That, my friend, is the bullseye. You may be hitting other places on the target, and you may feel pretty good. I got a pretty good shot Saturday night. It didn't hit the bullseye, but it was a pretty good shot. And all the folks in the church went, wow, ooh, ah. But I still sinned. I still missed the mark. You can settle for something less, or you can aim for the bullseye. God's bullseye for your life and for mine, and we're going to find out in coming weeks 
what Jesus came to restore in mankind was nothing less than the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of, they've missed that glory, but Christ came now to help us hit the bullseye, to restore us to the very glory of God. That's why it is called the gospel of the glory of God. The gospel of the glory of God. More about this in coming weeks, but I hope I've stirred you up and I've put a little bit of hunger and thirst in your heart to learn more. This is exciting stuff. I want to know more about the glory of God. I want to see His glory. I want His glory in my life. I don't want to settle for anything less because He doesn't want me. He doesn't want you settling for anything less than the very bullseye of that target, the glory of God. Let's close in prayer for tonight. Father God, how desperately this world now needs to see you, to see you high and lifted up in all of your splendor, your radiant majesty, your glorious light. Show us your glory. And God, we have your promise that in these last days, as things go from darkness to gross darkness, we go from confusion to gross confusion. You said to your people, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Father God, let your glory rise upon the church in these last days. Make your church a glorious, radiant church, filled with the glory of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our understanding, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know Christ better, to look into the face of Jesus Christ where you are revealing your glory. God bless each and every one that is with us tonight. Continue to speak to us. Continue to reveal yourself in greater and greater ways. Father, I pray for every church represented here in this Bible study, every pastor, every minister. We pray like Moses. God, if your presence doesn't come, we're no different from anybody else. What else will distinguish us from all the other peoples on the earth? Nothing except for your presence, your manifest glory. Let the glory of God fill the churches in these last days. Remove anything and everything that is hindering or standing in its way. We give you praise, we give you honor and glory. The greatness, the power, the glory, the majesty, and the splendor is all yours. Be exalted, almighty God, forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.